0: The bedrock and surface deposits of Pennsylvania span over a billion years of geologic time. Pennsylvania literally rocks. Welcome to the PCBG podcast series. The Pennsylvania Council of Professional Geologists invites you to join us on a journey to explore the geology of the Keystone State and to meet the people who study it and work with it in their everyday lives. Welcome to a poorly sorted but well-rounded podcast, a production of PCPG. I'm your host, Ross Lasco. Now when you find yourself hiking a trail or driving through farm fields in Pennsylvania, it might be easy to conclude that the state is a peaceful bucolic place that never saw much in the way of calamity. But the truth is that Pennsylvania is a land that has been sculpted by fire, ice, and cataclysm. Now, anybody who's had a child in their life in the last couple of decades or so probably has a passing familiarity with Ice Ages from the movies of that name. I must admit that I enjoyed the adventures of Manfred, Sid, Diego, and Scrat as much as anybody, but it turns out that the movies may not have been all that accurate. When we talk about Ice Ages, we are referring to a number of episodes in the Earth's history where ice covered significant portions of the planet. We know of five of these periods throughout the Earth's history. These are the Huronian, from about 2.4 to 2.1 billion years ago, the Cryogenian, from about 850 to 635 million years ago, the Andean Saharan, about 460 to 430 million years ago, the Karoo, from 360 to 260 million years ago, and the Quaternary or Pleistocene glaciations that started about 2.6 million years ago and ended possibly about 18,000 years ago. So often when we talk about ice ages, we're referring to that most recent series of glaciations, the Quaternary glaciations. These started at the beginning of the Pleistocene epoch about 2.6 million years ago. It was this series of ice ages that sculpted much of Pennsylvania's landscape, either directly or indirectly. The causes of the Pleistocene glaciation are many and still the subject of much research. That said, it's generally considered that the Milankovitch cycles are the main drivers of climate. These were first recognized by Militon Milankovic, a Serbian scientist, during World War I. He recognized that there were three cycles that had been previously noted in the Earth's orbital variations that appeared to impact climate. These three are orbital eccentricity, which seems to occur on about a 100,000-year cycle, axial tilt, which occurs on a 41,000-year cycle, and precession, which occurs on a cycle of about 23,000 years. Now, orbital eccentricity refers to the variation in the shape of the Earth's orbit around the sun, becoming more or less elliptical, and therefore increasing or decreasing the amount of solar insulation, which is the amount of solar radiation that is received by the Earth. Variations in axial tilt can change the inclination of the Earth's axis on a range of between 22 to 24 and a half degrees. As the tilt steepens, it brings a more distinct change in the severity of the seasons, bringing more solar energy in the summer and less in the winter. Precession has a similar effect. This refers to wobbles in the Earth's axis. Rather like a spinning top that is slowing down and starts to wobble, the Earth exhibits this as well So don't worry, the Earth is not going to fall over. The main effect of the Milankovitch cycles is to change the contrast between the seasons, not the amount of solar radiation that the Earth receives. The result, especially if these cycles coincide at the extreme end of the cycles or overlap, that favors less solar radiation being received is less ice melting than accumulating. This causes glaciers to increase in size. At the other extreme, we would expect to see the opposite effect. The Earth's climate is also strongly influenced by ocean circulation, more specifically by thermohaline circulation. Now, I don't want to go down a rabbit hole on thermohaline circulation because that might possibly steal from a future podcast. But most of us have probably at least heard of the Gulf Stream, that warm river of ocean water that flows northward along the Atlantic coast of North America. The Gulf Stream is merely one part of a global ocean circulation system that brings warm water to the North Atlantic, then returns it southward, where it makes its way around the Cape of Good Hope and into the Indian and Pacific Oceans, where it then rewarms and returns again. This system, redistributes heat around the globe. This is one of the reasons why the British Isles in Northern Europe have a temperate climate, despite being at a similar latitude as Labrador. One major current, the fittingly named Antarctic Circumpolar Current, not surprisingly, circles Antarctica. That current helps to keep the southern continent cold, But prior to about 30 million years ago, this wasn't the case because Australia and Antarctica were connected. This configuration forced the Antarctic circumpolar current to turn northward and flow around the northern coast of Australia through the tropics. This warmed the current, which then transferred the heat to Antarctica, keeping it ice-free. Thanks to plate tectonics, however, about 30 million years ago, Antarctica and Australia split apart. This then allowed the current to short circuit and then turn into its current path where it keeps cold water circulating around Antarctica. At about this time, we start to see global temperatures starting to decrease. This isn't the only theory or the only factor, however. At about five million years ago, we also see the Isthmus of Panama changing from being a series of islands to becoming a land bridge that now connects North and South America. North and South America had been disconnected for nearly 200 million years since the breakup of Pangaea. This reconnection of the two continents certainly cut off ocean currents that had been circulating between the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans since Pangaea split apart. This likely had a significant effect on global temperatures as well. We also see global carbon dioxide levels dropping at about the same time period. Carbon dioxide, as you may know, is a greenhouse gas, which helps retain heat from the sun. Throughout the Earth's history, when CO2 levels rise, temperatures tend to rise. When CO2 levels drop, then temperatures also tend to drop. Now, global carbon dioxide and methane levels had spiked during an event called the Paleocene-Eocene Thermal Maximum about 55.5 million years ago. This was due to large-scale volcanism that occurred at this time. But those levels in the atmosphere of greenhouse gases have been slowly decreasing. These, and possibly other factors, ushered in the Pleistocene Epoch and the first ice ages in over 250 million years. Glaciers have been referred to as rivers of ice. This is a good analogy for alpine glaciers, where ice accumulates on a slope, then begins to move downward. Continental glaciers, though, don't flow because of gravity pulling the ice downslope. They flow because of pressure. A continental glacier, like Antarctica, receives most of its input in the interior and outputs material at the margins. Now, picture a ball of Play-Doh. Ever since my granddaughter was born, I've got to spend a lot of time with Play-Doh. And as adults, we really need to spend more time with Play-Doh. Think of a ball of Play-Doh. If you push down on the center of the ball, the dough spreads out away from this pressure. This is how continental glaciers move. But regardless of which type of glacier it is, the issue with the flow is that it is ice, and ice is solid. So now we have a solid trying to flow like a liquid due to pressure. Anytime you have this happening, the solid is going to crack. Cracks in a glacier are referred to as crevasses. Crevasses are one of the features that makes exploration of glaciers so dangerous. Crevasses are not always visible as they can be masked by snow. When you're exploring glaciers, one of the key rules is that your party needs to be connected, literally. You need to be roped together, usually with a gap of 30 or 40 feet between individuals. This way, if one person falls into a crevasse, they can be retrieved by the others, but they're not close enough that if they fall on the crevasse, they're gonna drag the next person in with them. When one is on a glacier, it does not feel like it is moving. The glacier is constantly changing, albeit often slowly. I know from experience that a hike on a glacier is not like a hike on solid land. It is possible to spend a day hiking on a glacier then try to retrace your steps to return, only to find that the landscape, or is it ice scape, may have changed. The narrow crevasse that you stepped easily over several hours ago now requires a bit of a leap to get across. The crevasse that you leaped over in the morning now has to be circumvented completely in the afternoon because it is too wide to get across. Hiking on a glacier requires that one be alert at all times. Classically, that is to say, when I was an undergraduate back in the old days, we were taught that there were four Pleistocene glaciations. These, in order from the oldest to the most recent in North America, are known as the Nebraskan, Kansan, Illinoisan, and Wisconsinan glaciations. In Europe, they're given different names. These glaciations are proven by physical evidence in the form of distinct glacial features such as moraines. More recently, however, ice core data from Antarctica and other regions comparing oxygen 18 and oxygen 16 isotope ratios and other atmospheric gases indicate that there were probably somewhere between 11 and 14 Pleistocene glaciations. The last of these The Wisconsin and glaciation began about 75,000 years ago. and It's generally agreed that it ended around 11,000 years ago with its peak, the last glacial maximum, being around 18 to 25,000 years ago. Glaciers have been a major force that has shaped Pennsylvania, as well as the rest of the entire northern portion of North America. In fact, glaciers may be one of the most important forces that shaped the landscape of the planet. The Australian naturalist Tim Flannery once said, there's only one question you need to ask of a continent in order to determine the fate of its people. Did you have a good ice age? The continents that did have extensive glaciation during the Pleistocene, North America, Europe, and Asia, have excellent soils for agriculture. The continents that did not have widespread glaciation, Africa, South America, and Australia are nowhere nearly as fertile. Glaciers are masses of ice that form in a unique fashion. They form when snow falls and temperature allows it to persist. Then a subsequent snowfall buries the original snowfall and this continues over and over again. If you've ever had a snowfall and didn't shovel your driveway or sidewalk right away, then tried to do it a day or two later, you might have an appreciation for how this works. Snow left in place starts to compact and crystallize, seeming to glue itself to the underlying surface, be that surface driveway, sidewalk, yard, mountainside, really doesn't matter. If you then get additional snow falling on top of that, the weight of the new snow helps to compress the underlying snow farther, compacting it and continuing the process. In a glacier, this process is writ large. Over and over again, the snowfall, crystallization, and compaction continues. As the snow compacts, it increases in density, compressing and forming a material known as fern. Eventually, the fern compresses into ice. But this ice is different from what we, most of us are used to. Glacial ice, if you ever get the opportunity to see it, is dense dense and it's bright blue like the sky. It's denser than the ice that you add to a drink from your freezer. We're so used to ice being white, but that white is an artifact of air bubbles being trapped in the ice. Glacial ice still has air bubbles, but those air bubbles have been compressed and much of the air has been pushed out. Since glacial ice is so dense and has so much less air trapped in it, we're dealing with a more pure form of water. This glacial ice absorbs all other parts of the spectrum, leaving only the deep blue color. Water is unusual in the physical world. Most substances get more dense going from the liquid to the solid phase, but water gets less dense. Now this is not absolutely unique For example, germanium does the same thing, but honestly, when was the last time you took some solid germanium out of your freezer to put it into some liquid germanium? Liquid water has a density of one gram per cubic centimeter. So for our purposes here, let's just say one. Normal ice has a density of about nine-tenths of a gram per cubic centimeter. Ice is less dense than water because the crystalline structure of ice is ring-shaped. This is because water is a polar molecule, having both a positive and a negative size. This would be really easy to illustrate if we were in a classroom with a whiteboard, but this is a podcast, so you're just going to have to take my word for it on this, or you can look it up in your free time. Not now. Come on, we have a podcast to finish first. So water has a density of 1, and ice has a density of 0.9. But the key here is the ring-shaped crystalline structure. As more and more snow falls and adds weight to the glacier, the rings get squashed and this makes the ice more dense. It may seem like a minor thing, but the compression of the ring structure increases the density of the glacial ice just a little bit to about 0.92 to 0.93. As a result, glacial ice persists longer and floats a little lower in the water than normal ice. This helps explain why icebergs are so dangerous, because more of them are below the surface than one would really expect. Now, given the right conditions, the accumulating snow, the fern, and the ice beneath can collect over time and grow, forming a glacier. If this glacier is, as many are, on a mountain, then there will come a time when the weight of the ice is such that it starts to move due to the pull of gravity. This usually requires the ice to be at least 150 feet thick. At this thickness, the resulting pressure forces the lower ice to start behave as a plastic and begin to flow while the surface continues to act as a brittle solid. Meanwhile, at the upper reaches of the glacier, snow is still being input, producing yet more ice, while at the bottom end of the glacier, water is leaving the system via meltwater and sublimation. Sublimation, by the way, is the direct conversion of a solid to a gaseous phase without going through the liquid phase. This is what we see when we watch dry ice, which is solid carbon dioxide, giving off that white vapor but no liquid. If the glacier terminates in water, it will also calve icebergs. I would love to cue some Celine Dion music here, but that stuff's copyrighted and we can't afford it. It helps to think of the glacier as being a conveyor belt, always moving, but also largely staying in the same place. Now remember the analogy about unshoveled snow freezing to a driveway. The same phenomenon occurs here, and as the glacier moves, the sticky underside will pluck rocks off of the underlying material. So now we have a massive moving block of ice with rocks frozen to the bottom. This means that the underside of the glacier is now going to act like a giant power sander, polishing the bedrock underneath and producing, instead of sawdust, material known as rock flour. Rock flour is composed of silt and clay-sized particles of ground-up rock. This rock flour and the rocks plucked by the glacier become embedded in the ice, forming a matrix of ice and debris. Visiting a modern-day Alpine Glacier illustrates this beautifully. Here you can see the ground-up bedrock and rock flower and the plucked rocks that range in size from gravels to boulders piled up on the moraine. A moraine is simply the pile of earth debris that's transported to the terminus of the glacier. Think of a bulldozer or a snow plow pushing material in front of it. This pile of material becomes the moraine. Now, the term moraine also refers to the lateral stripes of material along the sides of the glacier. These are specifically referred to as lateral moraines. If two or more glaciers join together, just like tributaries of a river or a stream joining the main channel, they retain these lateral moraines that run as stripes the length of the glacier. These are known as medial moraines. The moraine at the end of the glacier, the piled up debris, is referred to as the terminal moraine. These moraines are unruly jumbles of material with no sorting whatsoever. You can find boulders sitting next to clay, sitting next to gravel or sand. The landscape looks like some deranged bulldozer operator has just run amok, piling material in random patterns. This random jumble of material is referred to as till. Now, some will refer to it as glacial till, but if you use the term glacial till in close proximity to a glaciologist, be prepared to be chastised. They will be quick to point out to you that there is no such thing as non-glacial till, so we should just use the term till. Moraine State Park in Butler County, Pennsylvania, is named for the moraines that crossed the area. Looking to the northeast, Long Island, Martha's Vineyard, Nantucket, and Cape Cod are all remnants of the terminal moraine of the Laurentide Ice Sheet. Advertisers love to use the term glacial to suggest a pure and pristine condition. I always enjoy seeing brands of drinking water labeled with names like Glacial Clear or Glacial Lake. It's obvious that the advertisers have never visited a glacial stream. The meltwater from a glacier is murky stuff, heavily laden with sediments. Often the water would be opaque, frequently a gray color due to the fresh rock flower held in suspension. My first visit to such a stream was on a fishing trip to Alaska. Stepping up to the edge of the stream, I found it hard to believe that fish could be found there because the water looked about the consistency of very runny, wet cement. But while I stood there skeptically watching, a king salmon porpoised in front of me. Apparently, fish don't care. That day we had our limit of salmon and trout by lunchtime. In Alaska, they say that you can often tell the origin of a glacial river just by its color. The Matanuska River, for example, is light gray. The Tonsina is a darker gray. The Copper River is a greenish gray. And the Kenai River is nearly turquoise. These colors attest to the mixture of bedrocks eroded by their respective glaciers. And the colors can change over time depending on the amount of melting and the geologic strata that are being downcut by the glaciers. An Alaskan guide once told me that when spending the night on a boat in a glacial river, you can hear sounds that you will never hear anywhere else as the nature of the sediments shift and change and the river flow brings those different sediments in contact with the bottom of the boat. The same guide also cautioned me against ever buying a used aluminum boat that had spent much time on the Kenai River, saying that the metal will be significantly thinner than when it left the factory. At the moraine, where this mixture of material is piled up, wind starts to play a significant part in deposition. The air above a glacier is cold and dense, while the air beyond the terminus is warmer and less dense. This means that the colder, denser air wants to rush down off of the glacier to join the warmer, less dense air. These are known as catabatic winds. They've been described as drainage winds because they drain the high pressure from these cold regions and bleed them into the warmer, less dense air. These strong catabatic winds can pick up the silt and clay-sized particles of rock flour and transport them by air, blanketing the landscape. This delivers finely textured soil, rich in minerals, to vast areas. Now imagine, if you will, scaling that process up to the continental scale. Let's step away from our smaller alpine glacier that may be less than a mile or so wide and tens of miles long. Now, try to picture the Laurentite ice sheet at the last glacial maximum about 18 to 25,000 years ago. We're talking two and a half million square kilometers of ice with an average thickness of about three kilometers, that yields about seven and a half million cubic kilometers of power sander, churning out incredible amounts of rock flour. Coming off of such a massive ice sheet, the catabatic winds could sometimes reach hurricane speeds. This means that the glacier was churning out unimaginably huge amounts of rock flour to be spread across the regions to the south, forming the lust soils that we now see. Also keep in mind the time frame involved. The Laurentide ice sheet spent something on the order of 50 to 60,000 years doing this. This must have been an incredibly dusty and inhospitable place to live at the time. Indeed, this is the time period when we see the ancestors of the Native Americans entering the scene. Classically, okay, again... For our purposes, classically means what I was taught when I was an undergraduate in the 70s. Classically, it was believed that the first Native Americans crossed the Bering Land Bridge around 12 to 14,000 years ago in what has been dubbed the Clovis Culture. But in the 1970s, Dr. James Adevasio, at the time at Pitt University, now at Mercyhurst College, found evidence of human habitation south of Pittsburgh at Meadowcroft Rock Shelter that dated to around 19,000 years ago. He endured a lot of criticism, but his work was incredibly meticulous and has withstood the test of time. Since then, a number of sites have been found that predate the Clovis and suggest that humans may have made their way possibly by boat along coastal routes, as early as 40,000 years ago to North America. Unfortunately, what was coast then is continental shelf now, and any concentrated habitations are probably under hundreds of feet of water now. Still, imagine if you will, the year is 15,000 BC, and you are a relatively new inhabitant of Pennsylvania. You and your family paddled up the Susquehanna River in an area that we now call the Chesapeake Bay just a few years ago. You were huddled in Meadowcroft Rock Shelter, crouched around a fire with your companions. Your day's hunt has been successful and you are roasting a leg of elk over the fire. But a storm has come up and the rock flower blowing over the top of the ridge sheltering you is thick and you and your companions have to tie cloth over your faces to keep it out. If you venture outside of the rock shelter, the rock flower blowing is thick enough to make you cough and choke. Whatever you do, you do not want to climb up the ridge top because there visibility is non-existent and breathing is extremely difficult. This is the world of the Last Glacial maximum. The end result from our point of view are the thick deposits of lust that blanket North America. This is what Tim Flannery was talking about when he asked that question, did you have a good ice age? The thick, dark, fertile soils of the American Great Plains have developed in these deposits, lust deposits that reach thicknesses of 25 feet or more. Similar soils can be found in the steppes of Europe and Asia Pennsylvania's soils benefited from this process as well. Recent research at Westchester University shows lust deposits, albeit shallower than those in the Midwest, in numerous places in the state. Broad deposits of lust have been found in southeastern Pennsylvania and the Delmarva Peninsula, capping the native soil beneath. These lust deposits are most likely derived from the most recent, the Wisconsin Glaciation. Recently, pre-Wisconsin loss has been identified in northern Pennsylvania by researchers at Bloomsburg University. But, exciting as soils may be, and I do feel compelled to point out here that they are absolutely critical to life, still, most people look more to the larger glacial features. Alpine glaciers carve U-shaped valleys. These are in contrast to the V-shaped valleys carved by rivers but continental glaciers tend to flatten large areas, creating plateaus. Many Pennsylvanians may be surprised to find out that the Commonwealth is dominated by plateaus. For me, growing up in the Pittsburgh area with its steep valleys, I thought that plateaus were something you found out west in Arizona or Texas. Yet if you climb the steep hills of this region to the summit, you find yourself on a level plateau. Similarly, in the northeastern portion of the state, referred to as the Pocono Mountains or the Endless Mountains, you find the same feature. Steep valleys, but the summits are all at nearly the same elevation. This is the origin of the name Endless Mountains. When you reach the top, all you see are row after row of summits stretching in front of you, stacked one after another, seemingly endless. If you look around while on one of these summits and you're lucky enough to find some bedrock outcropping, it's likely to have some glacial striations on it. These are the grooves and scratches carved by the Laurentite ice sheet when it moved across this landscape. For over 25 years my wife and I owned a cabin that we had built in Sullivan County in the Endless Mountains. This is within the glaciated high plateau We spent many wonderful times there exploring that area. One weekend I was with some friends and we went hiking along the Loyal Sauk Creek. One friend kept picking up rocks and bringing them to me to identify. A number of them proved to be limestone, some with fossils in them. These fossils and the limestone though didn't match the Devonian sandstones of the valley or anything upstream of there. These are glacial erratics. These are rocks that are transported from far away by the continental glacier. Sometimes in glaciated areas, you can find rocks of many different origins. Another time while working in Wisconsin, I noticed a retaining wall in front of the hotel where I was staying made of boulders. The boulders were composed of red sandstone, limestone, gray wacky, diabase, and granite. All of these had been locally sourced Yet none of these match the underlying bedrock. If you've ever watched the movie, The Shawshank Redemption, the main character expresses an interest in geology. And there's a scene where he tells his friend that if he ever gets out of prison to go to a farm field in Maine and look for a volcanic rock that has no business being there, he sends his friend looking for a glacial erratic. As a side note, if you're familiar with this scene, The location that was used with the prominent tree in the corner of the field is actually in Ohio. The owners have had to fence off the tree and put up surveillance cameras because of vandals. Continental glaciers tend to leave features behind that can be roughly spoon-shaped. Drumlins are one of these features. Although they're not as common in Pennsylvania, These are shaped like elongated inverted spoons, or I've heard them described as half-buried eggs that are elevated above the landscape. The long axis points in the direction of the flow of the ice. These are evidence of glacial ice reworking till or moraine deposits. They occur in large swarms in places like Wisconsin and Minnesota, and what has been referred to as basket of egg topography but they can be found in isolated locations in Pennsylvania. Unfortunately, such features are often muted from centuries of plowing. The other similarly shaped feature that can sometimes be found is what is referred to as Roche-Moutonnet. This is where glacial ice has carved a similar spoon shape in exposed bedrock by plucking material on the side facing the ice flow, then the ice riding over a piece of more resistant bedrock and sculpting it into this form. Eskers can be found throughout the glaciated portions of Pennsylvania. I've heard of eskers described as a stream bed in reverse. They're often long, meandering ridges of gravel and sand. These are the result of rivers or streams that carve tunnels through the glacial ice. They tend to form nearer the terminus of a glacier, where ice movement is slower and more liquid water is found. Once this tunnel is established, it acts like any other stream, carrying and depositing stream cobbles and pebbles, and meandering just like a stream would do. They only become readily visible, though, when the glacier disappears and we're left with this now elevated meandering ridge of coarse material, Shortened forms of these can occur where gravel and sand deposition has occurred in crevasses or in channels on the surface of the glacier. Another feature that we can thank the Laurentide Ice Sheet for are glacial lakes. There are two main processes for forming glacial lakes. The first is scouring of bedrock to produce a concave surface where meltwater collects. Examples of this include Eaglesmere Lake in Sullivan County, and Harvey's Lake in Luzerne County. The second is the formation of kettle lakes. These typically form in ice margin lakes where the parent glacier is calving icebergs. The katabatic winds that we talked about earlier push the icebergs away from the ice front until they run aground. Wave action causes the icebergs to rock back and forth, gouging a depression. Later, Once the glacier has retreated and the ice margin lake has shrunk, the water collects in these kettle lakes. A good example of this process in Pennsylvania is Conneaut Lake in Crawford County. Minnesota is known as the land of 10,000 lakes, and it owes its nickname to this process. Large areas of paraglacial swamp are found in the northern portion of Pennsylvania. These were formed by these same processes. As we've stated previously, glaciation has been a huge sculptor of the landscape of Pennsylvania. But only about 30% of the state was actually under the Laurentide ice sheet. The remainder of the state, although it wasn't directly under the ice, still felt its effects. Most, if not all, of Pennsylvania is impacted by paraglacial processes. The effect of the extreme cold that resulted from the glacier to the north. Many of these features are only readily visible in the subsurface. Research has shown that the southern portion of the state and the states to the south of us, because we need to remember that there were no states back then and that the climate really doesn't care about political boundaries, were at various times tundra and arctic desert. Remember our discussion of the lust deposits and how windy and dusty that was? Well, windy and dusty means abrasive. At the boundary in the soil between the lust deposits and the underlying native soil, we tend to find ventifacts. Ventifacts are wind abraded rocks, the like of which we now associate with desert environments. Imagine, if you will, a southern portion of Pennsylvania with a continental glacier stretching across the northern tier. Strong winds gusting to 60 or 80 miles per hour pour down off of the ice, carrying the abrasive lus, scouring every exposed rock, polishing it like the desert pavement that we find in Arizona today, then eventually burying it in lus. Sometimes in excavations, we find the polished rocks and ventifacts, the former desert pavement at the lower boundary of the lus. There, giving mute testimony to the abrasive environment of the ice ages. In this cold paraglacial climate, the soil freezes, forming permafrost. As the land freezes, it dries out and contracts, forming polygonal cracks. In cold regions, such as the Arctic, these cracks can be seen at the surface, forming polygonal or circular shapes that can resemble a honeycomb. This is known as patterned ground. Frost heaving can then bring coarser materials such as gravel or cobbles to the surface along these cracks. This can be seen sometimes in the northern tier of Pennsylvania, especially at high altitude. These polygonal shapes have been mistakenly interpreted by some as being of human manufacture. One colleague of mine has related numerous instances of having to describe this process to government agencies to prevent projects being held up for archaeological investigation. These desiccation cracks exposed at the surface can then become infilled with LUS, which then also freezes. When the landscape starts to thaw and the soil rehydrates, it wants to re-expand, but it cannot because of the LUS in these cracks. This causes self-compaction. This is one of the mechanisms that may have caused one of the most common soil features in Pennsylvania, fragipans. Fragipans, if you're not familiar with them, are dense horizons of soil found in the subsurface throughout much of Pennsylvania. They act as an aquitard and are a hindrance to construction and to agriculture as well. Okay, now I guarantee that if any soil scientists are listening, I have most likely upset at least a portion of them with this statement. If this is true, please know that I would love to hear their theory and discuss it at length, preferably over beer. Until such time, they're welcome to start their own podcast and record whatever the heck they want. A more extreme version of this phenomenon is the formation of ice wedge casts. These are wedge-shaped structures that occur due to this same process, but on a larger scale. The only places where wedge casts are actively forming today are Greenland and Antarctica. I haven't been to either location yet, but those who have been and have witnessed this process tell me that when the ground cracks, it sounds like a gunshot. The resulting crack then infills with lust just as we previously discussed. If you dig up or expose the wedge-shaped feature, it is striking, and it is unmistakable evidence of long-term, very cold conditions and permafrost. Once upon a time, I was lucky enough to be part of discovering ice wedge casts outside of Georgetown, Delaware, at about 38.7 degrees north latitude, for a very short time, that is to say a few months This was the southernmost known extent of evidence of permafrost in North America. Now these features have been found as far south as northern Virginia. A more subtle glacial feature of Pennsylvania can be found around the coast of Lake Erie. If you look at the tributaries of Lake Erie, you will see that the streams there are short and rarely exceed four miles in length. Meanwhile, look at the other waterways in the state. The Susquehanna River stretches all the way into New York State and empties into the Chesapeake Bay. The Chesapeake Bay is really the flooded mouth of the river. This river stretches for over 440 miles. Even the much smaller Brandywine Creek in southeastern Pennsylvania stretches over 20 miles before flowing into the Christina River in Delaware. I grew up along the Big Swickley Creek outside of Pittsburgh which stretches almost 30 miles. Why these shortened streams? This is the result of isostasy. Isostasy is the response of land to the weight that is piled on top of it. Imagine a canoe floating in a lake. If one person gets in the canoe rides a little lower. Two people and it rides even lower. Put four in and it's dangerously close to swamping. If people then start climbing out, the canoe rises back up. The same thing happens with a continental glacier forming. The weight of the ice pushes the land downward. When the glaciation ends and the weight is removed, the land starts to rise. The land in the northern portion of Pennsylvania is still rising from the removal of the weight of the glacier. As the continental glacier retreated, Long streams that used to flow into Lake Erie were captured by watersheds south as the land rose. This leaves the streams along Lake Erie as shortened stubs of their former selves. This process of isostatic uplift also explains why if one travels northward along the Atlantic coast, you will see the coastline transition from the flat beaches of Delaware and New Jersey to the cliffs of Maine. Anywhere that the ice sat, it pushed the land downward and that land is now rising and rebounding. Some would argue that the Pleistocene ended with the last glacial maximum and that we now live in the Holocene or the Anthropocene. Others maintain that we're merely in the latest interglacial period, waiting for the next ice age to occur. Regardless of which estimation is correct, It is undeniable that the Pleistocene glaciations have left the northern portions of North America, Europe, and Asia significantly changed. The landforms known to those who came before us, be they dinosaurs, synapsids, or simply the early primates, those landscapes were very different from what we see today. The last 2.6 million years has seen a transformation of the landscape. The glacial lakes... The moraines, the rich soils, and the other glacial features owe their existence to the massive ice sheets that once dominated the continent. This is the landscape that our species evolved in. The one in which we learned to walk erect, to bang rocks together to form tools, to settle into communities, to form civilizations, and to become human. Always remember that the Earth is a dynamic planet, constantly changing. Let us hope that we can continue to deal with the changes that are yet to come. This episode of the PCPG podcast, a poorly sorted but well-rounded series, is a production of the Pennsylvania Council of Professional Geologists. A special thank you to Rachel Cruz for the introduction. These podcasts are hosted on several platforms and also available on the PCPG website, If you enjoyed this episode, please consider taking a moment to give us a rating and leave us a comment to let us know what you think. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. PCPG is a nonprofit organization working to advance the practice of geology and the allied sciences and the success of our members through advocacy, education, and networking. Whether you are a corporation professional or a student please consider becoming a pcpg member today just visit our website pcpg.org and be sure to check out the resources tab thanks for tuning in i am your host ross lasco